Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed are our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And you can find out more on our website, innerzonepodcast.com. Or on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode. So hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. And me, Josh Hughes. In this episode, we're going to talk about AI and the role of AI in art. So, can AI create art and um, is it something we want to do? I think is the question. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because um, I suppose a lot of people associate AI systems with just being in a computer and being fast computers and stuff, don't they? Just calculating things, yeah. as in seeing machines as being just for calculations and doing mm. what we tell them to. But art is a very creative process. Yeah. I suppose you've had an interesting experience this week. Yeah, so I, I received an email from a publisher that I work with, and they've, they've updated their terms and conditions. And I think it was number seven on this list of new sort of points on their terms and conditions about things they don't no longer accept to sort of print and whatever. And number seven was they know they will no longer accept any works created by AI and or automated processes, which I thought was a uh, very interesting um, because it implies an awful lot of different things. Um, I mean, there's a sense, I suppose, that it suggests that maybe people are already doing it or maybe they're trying to head off people from potentially doing it in the future. But this then opens up a whole realm of different questions around, I suppose, well, can AI produce art? Is it, is it art at all? But also then, well, how do we differentiate, sort of say, human art from robot art? Because there's there's I suppose there's also this risk of the fact that, that AI or computers, robots, whatever you want to call them, can continuously produce over and over and over again, whereas they won't suffer from the same sort of frailties and, as, say, like a, your typical human artist. Yeah. Um, but I suppose we should probably explain about what how... AI arts are made, should we? Right, in that, you know, so say it's a piece of writing or it's a piece of image or a piece of music, um, you know, a program will basically provide lots of examples to an AI system mm. and say and give it and, and tell it to, to find similarities in these in these data sets, um, and then the AI system will basically use those similarities to or output those similarities in, in such in a way that. Um, programmer has, has, has told it to, to do basically yeah in a, in a kind of, sort of self-learning sort of way so it looks at what's out there already and then it tries to build on that or build something similar yeah though of course in a way you could say well that's not art because you're just copying what really exists yeah I suppose that's one of the main points really isn't it in that if art is if art is something truly creative then mm. doing what's then taking what's done been done before and sort of remixing it maybe that's not art maybe that you know that's, 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 oh, that's one perspective you could take, isn't it? Yeah, but then plenty of humans do the same thing, and we're, yeah. we're very accepting of it. Yeah, as I said that, I thought there's plenty of DJs who would who would uh, <laughs> who would oppose that view. Yeah, because not all art is rooted in difference. Some of it is rooted in the sort of repetition of existing norms yeah. and so and, forth, and subverting existing norms as well. Yeah, I mean the facts. I mean early on in this whole process, you can imagine well the first few computers that do this it is a form of art in itself because it's a computer doing it, not a human doing it. So that in itself is a subversion. Of existing norms, oh, yeah. ways of thinking, and well, this is actually um, what my supervisor sort of hinted at, and when he um, he uh, replied to my tweet, 
However, what I didn't reply to, and this is what I meant, because I knew it would open up a whole can of worms, is that <laughs> the problem is, of course, if, if I create an art-creating machine, and I create one or two, say, and like great, their works of art, say, but then obviously I could just leave that machine running, and it'll keep on going and going and going, and suddenly you're not producing art anymore, you're just sort of producing like a sort of photocopier, sort of, um, you're not producing anything new, essentially. Then also that then undermines the original pieces because those original pieces are just one one link in a long chain of repeated processes that obviously, well, I suppose would drown out any possibility of human art because this art has just been sort of mass produced. Well, I suppose that that, that sort of because well, so it's in terms of mass production and sort of repetition, mm. that made me think of was was, was two things really. It's, it's Damien Hirst really. Yeah. So Damien Hirst likes doing lots of spot paintings. Mm. So literally just spots, multicolored spots in various geometric kind of designs. Yeah. Um, and often he doesn't actually make them. It's just he has a team of artists who work under him who actually produce it. Right. So in one way, obviously, there's sort of the mass production aspect in that he's done a lot of these ones, these, mm. these spot paintings. Um, but they're all different. Mm. And in another sense, also, it's it's similar to the AI system in that he is using other entities to produce his art. Yeah, he's given them a set of algorithmic processes, like drop blue paint here. Well, so, I don't, I don't, well just yeah. a very simple version of that. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'd, yeah, obviously, I don't really know how it works in his yeah. studio, but um, he must give quite a bit of direction, otherwise it would, it would seem to be the, the the art piece would seem to be his, his, his assistants. Rather yeah. than his. I mean, there's a couple of issues. I mean, firstly, it sounds a bit ethically dubious if you're going to sell a painting saying it's Damien Hirst, but it's not necessarily Damien Hirst. I mean, that in itself is problematic. But then, I mean, this, this actually really ties in nicely with this whole concept of my thesis, really, where I'm looking at the idea that actually you can, we can think of human behaviours as being very robotic, like as in this exact example where the humans themselves become these sort of cogs in the machine, whereby these artists that are working for Damien Hirst they might not, you might not even call them artists. Do you call them artists or do you call them technicians? You call them artist assistants, usually. Artist assistants, right. Okay, that's interesting in itself. Um, yeah, so how we think about them would be interesting. Um, but are they then themselves inserting a creative element to that process? Because in a way they are, because yeah. you can't not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Because if, if you're, even if you're just painting the, you know, the blue spot in mm. the painting, then uh, maybe you go outside the line a little bit. Yeah. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's a bit too far within the line. Whatever. It's, you're adding something of yourself into it in some way. Yeah. I think. I think if. I think if Damien told you and I to do a blue spot on a bit of paper, we'd do two different blue spots. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And you could tell us to do it a hundred times. We probably wouldn't do the same blue spot. Yeah. Exactly. So. So kind of in that sense, there's that difference there, isn't there, between the fact that the actual artwork itself is being produced by a human. Yeah. And even the mass production of it, if we're going to call it mass production. Yeah. Is. Um, there's still going to be sort of difference in it, even, yeah. Even if we even if we try to make the same painting again, there'll be a difference there. Um, but obviously with, with sort of prints of artwork, mm. so lots of people when they buy artwork, it's not actually it's not sort of the original painting or whatever, or no. whatever, or it's just a print. Mm. Um, but we don't sort of class that as well. We, I think society does class that as being worth less because they're cheaper to buy. But, it's it's um, weird, isn't it, how we think about art in value? Yeah, but I mean, but in, you know, no one thinks of that as of in terms of it being an artwork. No one mm. really thinks of that as being less or as, as conveying less, just because it's kind of a, a no. bit of it. So I suppose there's that mass production aspect, isn't there? And that prints are well, mass production. I don't prints are usually sort of a, a few hundred. 
Yeah. Or maybe less. Um, I don't know, maybe a few hundred isn't quite mass production levels, but it's um, yeah, it's, it's really really fascinating because then I mean this opens up the whole sort of question of modern art as well and reproduction things. I mean, I mean, but just go back to this robot AI concept. I mean, yeah, I suppose you could set it to okay, you've created this nice piece of art now, just print a million of them. At the same time, you could also say, well, actually, in this case, it's producing a new thing each and every single time. So artistically speaking, they are all different as opposed to say the reproduced. Um, item that you're talking about yeah. and then in a case, in a case that sort of risks undermining the ability like an artist so say say I was a tortured artist producing paintings of a certain type um, but obviously I can only produce a certain amount of time in my lifetime a certain amount of them in my lifetime based on all the sort of issues in my life or whatever's going on but a robot once it's got the hang of it just click repeat and like doesn't sleep does it <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah I suppose that's another aspect isn't it in that it would well, obviously, it would undermine it financially because supply and demand. Yeah, you know, the, the, the demand is completely fulfilled by an AI artist, isn't it? If it, mm. if people want to buy it. Yeah. Um, I suppose we'll come back to that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's sort of as you say, the classic sort of stereotype is a tortured artist who conveys their emotions through a painting or a collage or you know whatever it is, mm. sculpture, um, and some you know. It, for a lot of people, I think that's probably the crucial bit, isn't it? And a human artist conveys their emotions through their works, mm. but an AI system doesn't have emotions. It it's, it it replicates the what should I say? It replicates the indicators of emotion that is is seen in other artworks. Yeah. Or or you know not seen, but yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and and reproduces it. But is then that not what we humans do in a sense? Like we know what we perceive to be as love and then therefore are we just repeating what we perceive to be as love in our own lives? So yeah, we are sort of repeating sort of those cultural motifs, aren't we? Yeah. But I, th I suppose what I'm getting at is that, you know, the stereotypical touch artist has, has those feelings when they're making the, yeah. the artwork and, and, and that's, they have those feelings and that's why they put the motifs in the, in the work yeah. or, you know, or whatever. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an expression of real emotion. Yeah. Whereas the AI machine, it's just no. It's yeah, it's not. It's not anything. It's just. It's not. It's nowhere near emotion, is it? It's just a calculation. Yeah, and I suppose then, if you're going to buy the original art, say then, I suppose there's an assumed sort of hidden value in the product that you bought, and you're thinking that well, Mike's cut off his ear, and he's been really tortured in making this piece of artwork, or I'm buying into the brand of Mike's artwork, for example. Yeah. Um, beyond just what you see on the page, I mean, I, I could have just done a blue spot, and you're like, oh, that's a nice blue spot. But actually, part of the value is also understanding what's gone into that blue spot, yeah, which adds to our, my perceived value of it. However, you might not know about all this. You might just see a blue spot. Well, yeah, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that's the you know often if you go, you go to an art gallery and you look at something, you think, "What the bloody hell's that?" Yeah, take um, modern. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't take modern, but anyway, but you know, sometimes you go and you and you have no idea what it is, and, yeah. it's, and it's and it's really difficult to understand what it's conveying and if you try and put your own meaning to it it can be difficult mm. but then sometimes you know you go into an artwork and you either you immediately understand what it is or you can immediately see something it it reflects something in your life you, mm. can, attribute, you can not attribute to it but feel some connection yeah feel some connection to it yeah yeah um i suppose maybe you know that's, that's I mean, you know that's it's not impossible that both of those situations would come out of artworks produced by ai systems yeah. Um, but so yeah, so you might feel a connection to it, but it's not going to be that. 
It's just that it's, the connection you might have to a piece of AI artwork is because it reflects something in you. Mm. But it's not, it's not reflecting anything from the original artist. No. I, know, no. I suppose there is an element to which the person who's programmed it and made the machine is inserting some sort of yeah, absolutely. human insight into it. And also, it's obviously, because it's based on other people's artwork, yeah, that right. in itself is reflecting and repeating previously art, human thought processes. And the data set that the original, art, original programmer has curated. Yeah. Because they've created it in a particular... They will have, well, I would, I would assume they would create, curate it in a particular way. Yeah. No, it's, not, it's not just let's Google art and take every image and stick it into a machine. Well, I suppose right. you could do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be interesting in itself, wouldn't it? Yeah. So this leads me. I've got two big questions. I think we can touch upon here. Um, I don't know which one to start with. Actually, now as I'm looking at them written on my page. Okay, I'll go with this one. So we're talking about it's reflecting some sort of element of the human. These machines. Do we think then that maybe also these machines are taking us beyond the human? Can they open us up to a world of art that we wouldn't be able to experience just if we were thinking human terms? Because obviously as a human, you or I, if we were to make a piece of artwork, we are limited in a, fa- in a sort of an artwork based on our own experiences, understanding uh, sort, of, sort of the world in which we've grown up in. Would a machine be able to, would it be able to open our minds up to something beyond what you might normally think of in sort of human terms? Well, about... I mean, I guess so, because we have you know, AI systems that are in use today, are, say, you know, for big data, big data processing. Mm. Well, we use those because they see things, they find patterns in the data that humans couldn't. Yeah. So, you know, there's, a, there's probably a parallel there. Mm. You know, whether the actual sort of end result would be something beyond what humans would come up with, I don't know. But what it makes me think of, actually, is a quote from, um, <clears throat> again, from Ferran Adria. Right. who um, is an avant- or was an avant-garde chef. Um, and what he used to say was, something. he said something like, true creativity is to do something that could never have been imagined before, yeah. or never be done before, something like that. So in that sense, if, 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 we, if we say that as a definition, mm. then, and then an AI system, you know, we can draw that parallel from big data processing in that it can see, see patterns in data that have never been seen before, mm. that humans couldn't do, and we draw that parallel to artists, artistic works, and it, the machine does something that no human could ever do, yeah. or, or we, or we, well, it's difficult to say a human couldn't do it because we can't ask seven billion people. But no. what we can assume, no, well, no person could do. No. Um, then you know, by that definition, it would be creative. Yeah. But it's not. You know, there's not. A, it's not a. It's not. It's obviously, it's not a traditional process of creativity, is it? Cause no. It's. It's yeah using using those data patterns to to or take to manifest something that's new. Yeah. But it's not yeah the traditional approach of creativity of somebody thinking about things and coming up with a new idea. No, and there's there's also I suppose the question that if an AI does produce something completely groundbreaking and new, we ourselves might not even be able to recognise it as being as having the value that it does. I mean, obviously in the past you've got this case where loads of the most famous artists in the world basically weren't recognised in their lifetimes, but yeah. We've saved their artworks, and okay, years later, suddenly we go, oh, wow, actually, they were brilliant. The same thing has the potential to happen with these AI. But, of course, at the same time, because these AI are themselves not human, they're manufactured, we might just throw their stuff away and just turn them off. Yeah. Like, <laughs> which in itself is interesting, because it brings a whole a completely different perspective to how we understand art and our relationship with it. Because you could turn this machine off, put it in a cupboard, store it away for 100 years. Suddenly, you discover the amazing uh, innovative artwork of this machine, 
take out a cover the game, turn it back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's absolutely true, isn't it? It's, um, I mean, yeah, because like, say, Vincent Van Gogh wasn't, or Van Gogh wasn't um, particularly well-renowned in his lifetime, wasn't he? No. But, you know, now. Yeah. I think we, we pretty you, enjoy having lots of work. If you could rub him out now and, and get him painting again, yeah, he'd make, he'd make millions pretty quick. But then, at the same time, his art then loses some sort of intrinsic value, doesn't yeah. it? Because part of the value is the fact that we can't have any more of them. Yeah. That that is part of the thing where we go, okay, that's all those sunflowers or whatever. Like, there's only one of it. Like, really, and we we understand it in, within a certain context. But with a machine, I could just go, okay, print another three or four of these different plant variations. Or three, three or four hundred or thousand. Yeah. Or well, exactly. And then suddenly, it's not art anymore, is it? Or is it? Just, is it? That's the question. But I suppose. Well, yeah. So another thing about sort of mass production. Um, yeah, when you go to sort of um, like a homeware store, yeah, and there's sort of those quite generic prints. Oh yes, yes, that, yes, yes. That we wouldn't really call them art. We just sort of, I don't know what I don't know what we call them. But we don't call them art. Oh my dad, it's something. It's, something. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not what most well, a lot of people would understand as art. No, it's oh, I hate them. Like well, some are better than others, but there are, there's a certain type where. Like it's just like some pebbles, or it's just like some elephants walking along a savannah. Like, yeah. Um, and my, my dad bought some recently, and uh, in his house, and it's like they're, they're nice. Like I, I appreciate them as being nice pictures. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, what is what purpose do these serve? Yeah. And I think there's some, some so to bring it back to Damien Hirst, because yeah. he's quite famous for his schools. Um, you know, there was a period a few years ago where there was lots of schools in, and lots of things that you would find in homeware stores, um, and it just it stopped being this thing about that you could connect you could have a connection to it just became this generic image mm. like that, that that served no didn't really serve a purpose it didn't really it, it, mm. it was it was so common it was it was it's ubiquitous isn't it yeah it's, it, it sort of, i guess becomes part of the background rather mm. than something that you think about and therefore have a connection to yeah um so maybe maybe yeah the, the prevalence of ai art yeah, maybe the ubiquity of it. If it, you know, if, if someone's going to use it to make a million prints or however many, hmm. maybe then it starts to lose its. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's something human in the fact that, yeah, there's not very many of them, and it's it's like you were saying with this with Van Gogh's sunflowers and stuff. Hmm. The fact that he's dead hmm. means that it's only a limited amount of artwork of art there, and maybe there's something in that that limitedness of it. Hmm. Or, so this brings us back to this question that we've touched on a couple of times when we talked about AI in the past, um, which is the Turing test and this idea of deception, right? So obviously to, to most untrained professional eyes, I, I imagine if you were, if I was to paint a picture and we had a new created a machine that created a, a picture in the same vein, most people probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So yeah. therefore, does one intrinsically have any more or less value than the other? Well... That's the question. Yeah, that's the question isn't it? I suppose. Well, what this made me think of was, um, you know, an antiques roadshow. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> we're regular viewers. Um, you know, when, when there's sort of someone brings a painting, but it's a fake. Yeah. And the evaluator will always say, "How much did you pay for it?" And they're like, "Oh, two hundred quid." Yeah. Like, well, like, if, if you think it's worth two hundred quid, then it's worth two hundred quid. Yeah. So, in that sense, it's. Maybe maybe the value could be the same if someone if someone if someone you know says says a picture and someone buys it to put on their wall and they think that's worth 
200 quid's worth of brightening up my house. Mm. Well, then it's worth 200 quid, whether it's made by a person or it's made by an AI, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that applies for generic art, yeah. I was just wondering more in terms of people thinking, like, the big key yeah. sort of... Because obviously, yeah, a bit of, say, a Damon Hirst piece yeah. or, whatever, or, you know, Jeff Koons or whatever, that's imbued with a sense of um, cultural significance because, mm. because of their back catalogue and their track record of producing mm. influential art, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, like, I'm just thinking about Banksy, for example, right? So no one, technically, no one knows who Banksy is, yeah. right? Banksy could be a robot. Mm. And would that, would that then, yeah. would that, would, if Banksy were a robot, would that completely devalue all of the interesting artworks that he, I say he could be it, she could be she, because that could be another de deception for us. Um, could, is that, would that therefore devalue all of those works? Would they lose their meaning then if it was made by a robot? Maybe. Put, yeah, cause put, uh, probably because I think there's part of the part of the mythology of, of Banksy's work is that he is you know a hidden figure who does sort of politically relevant stuff. Yeah, um, and that's sort of part of yeah, sort of an artist against the system or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, but there is a whole mythology around these big name yeah. artists, isn't there? That builds up, and I think which also adds to the value or our perceived significance of it, especially like if you think about Van Gogh or, mm. or people like that. So I wonder then if maybe if, if there are going to be AI overlord <laughs> artists out there one day, maybe if they sort of hide behind human pseudonyms, if, if that that will be a way that they become mainstream, and then suddenly goes, oh, well, actually, by the way, this is just all made by machine. Maybe you never know. I mean, um, it's not. You could you could certainly imagine. That happened, couldn't you? Yeah. I suppose that's 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 another thing. It links with um, AI ethics in the sense that um, lots of AI ethics is, is one or one of the things. Lots of people when they write sort of principles of good use of AI and stuff is, is about transparency. Mm. And often what they mean is transparency in the code because often this code is so AI systems are often so complex that no one can really understand what it's doing. Yeah. Um, but also maybe it's transparency about who's using a particular piece of AI software or system mm. what they're doing with it. Yeah. Because actually if, if you, you know, use an AI to do something and then pretend it's you, so say it was big data processing and you pretended that, oh, actually I, I found all these patterns. People would think, wow, you're really smart. Yeah. But of course it's, it's I was going to say it's plagiarism, but it's kind of not really, because it's not copying the work of a person, is it? It's copying, it's using, using a machine to do with something. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's sort of, it's cheating in a way. Because it's you're you're taking the credit for something for, for what you've used the machine for, isn't it? You know, if, if you know, quite famously, is one of the early winners of the Tour de France, um, got off his bike and got in a car mm. and, and won, and you know, obviously that's cheating. Um, so in, but obviously that's quite that's that's a structured situation with rules and everything, isn't it? Whereas, um, you know, just claiming that this piece of art. I made it when really it's this machine that I've got in my back room. Mm. It's, it's, it's not it's not a sort of structured environment with with, with official rules, but it's against sort of cultural norms to say that. Or well, our assumptions of what is yeah, what, well, what is valuable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've already sort of mentioned subversion, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> maybe in a sense that would be it would be quite a a radical thing to to subvert those cultural norms as an artistic work. But then I suppose that the the claim of the work being yours when it's really the machines becomes a work in itself the claim is a work yeah. and the work is a work i think that applies for a sense now but say 50 years time when everyone's doing it no suddenly it's not a subversion is it 
Um, but I just wanted to, we just, you've already just touched on it a little bit already, because I was going to talk a little bit about the question of ownership and authenticity, yeah. right? Because one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking of as we're talking is, um, I don't know if you remember the case of the photographer and the monkey. Oh, yeah. So there's a famous case where uh, essentially a, a photographer sort of has a camera and this, essentially this, ma- this monkey picks the camera up and presses the shutter and basically takes a selfie of itself with this massive grin on its face. It, it's, it's, it's a really famous image across the internet. And then yeah. there, there was this big question over like, well, what's the ownership of this photo? Because essentially the photographer didn't do anything. But then there's because it's the monkey that picked it up and pressed the shutter button and it just happens to have turned out the way it did. Yeah. Then at the same time though, you could say, well, the photographer was in the position to have the equipment in that place and it just happened that the monkey went and did that. Yeah, I can't remember what the outcome of that case was. No, but the, but it, it does raise significant parallels, doesn't it? Because ultimately it's the same with this AI thing. It's like, I could leave my machine running and it could produce nothing. Nothing of any what we consider artistic value, though of course that art could be worth more in the future. But then equally, I could produce, it could produce amazing work straight away. Then is it mine? Or does the machine itself then have some sort of ownership over the product that it's produced? Well, so I remember reading a few months ago, and apparently there was a, somebody submitted, uh, I think it was something to a painting office, and on in the creator box, he put the name of his AI system they built. Mm. Um, and basically, for, for, the, for, for what he said was, I couldn't have come up with this on my own. Mm. You know, I didn't. I didn't actually do it. The machine did it. Um, and the patent office came back and said it needs to be a person. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I get the logic of the person saying I couldn't have done this. It's the machine did it. But you know, you know, it links up with my thinking on in my thesis on autonomous weapons that a person is controllable the machines that they use. Mm. So in that sense, I would say you know it's the person who owns the machine or use the machine. To come up with the the artwork or the yeah. or the the product or, or the idea or not, not the idea but you know whatever it is the piece yeah. of intellectual property or it's the person who used the machine that came, that, that owns it right that's what I would think but what if this machine was bought from a shop so it's a standard product that everyone owns if you if we both buy the same machine I press go you press go and one of our machines produces an amazing work of art and one doesn't like who, who's own does, is is it you or I that owns it or is it really the corporation that's made that machine. Because this does tie in with your... a hard question. I don't, yeah. Because I think, well, I suppose it depends what you do. Well, you know, if you just... Because it ties in with your autonomous weapon systems in a way, doesn't it? And responsibility. I mean, I'm thinking like, okay, so you, you, have, you have a gun. It's not the gun that kills someone technically. I mean, it is, but it's not. Mm. Because it's the person firing the gun. So it's yeah. the human taking responsibility for pulling the trigger. Which is a definitive action. But in the case of an artwork, if I'm just switching the machine on, yeah. is that a definitive action by me to create a piece of artwork? Or, or is it just the same as me turning on my TV? Or I suppose, but in, in the sense that you've decided to make that artwork, haven't you? Yeah. It's not like, okay, okay the, corp- the corporation that built it has, has done all the innards, yeah. shall we say. Um, so in that sense, maybe I would, I would think of it as co-ownership. Right. Because, okay, they, they've done the the background, in, mm. as in sexual property speak, they've, and, but by pressing the button and doing something with it, mm. you've then created something new. Yeah, and so actually, you could you could you could share that intellectual property. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, which but, but then that, that in itself is is interesting as yeah. to how that would work. I mean, I could almost foresee these things being connected to the internet anyway. So the, some sort of database collecting all the information. Well, yeah, I suppose, but I suppose, yeah. So I suppose if it's if it's open source and or Creative Commons yeah. licenses, then 
you know, nobody really owns it. Or, or the, the ownership is, is in such a way that um, that sort of remixing, if we're going to go back to that term, is, you know, is, is encouraged. Mm. Um, and I suppose doing that sort of saves, solves a lot of problems from the outset, doesn't it? Mm. Um, which would be good. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard question. I don't, I, you know, I'm not really sort of enough of an expert in IP and patents and all that kind of thing to, to sort of come to an answer, but sort of from my, yeah, from my work on autonomous weapons and the way that I understand that and the way I understand control of, of those systems, mm. um, yeah, to me, it would, it, it would not seem, or it would, it would seem right to sort of see, um, well, I sort of like parallel control. Mm. So you know, you as the, you as the user of a system and the person who and the or the corporation or whatever who built it, right? Um, you know, sort of exert control in parallel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I, I do imagine maybe these might these laws and understandings might change in the future because it's based on our understanding of what we mean to be human and robot now. Yeah, and these things might well change in the future if machines get to a point where we can think of them as sort of thinking entities in their own right. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, we've we've discussed that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's but, fascinating uh, subject, though, isn't it? And it is. Yeah. Check out our other podcast if you've uh, <laughs> if you're interested in these questions. So I just want to bring this back to the initial the initial um, sort of statement that we made at the beginning about publishing in particular, because mm. now books, I think, are a specific case when it comes to the production of art. Yeah. We've had a podcast before, which was um, where I talked about um, essay mills and ghostwriting, and we talked about this idea that actually it won't be very long, really, until an AI can very easily or not artificial intelligence even, just a sort of an algorithmic process, create essays on behalf of people. There comes a point, obviously, where the same will be possible with books, I would suggest. Although you could even suggest, actually, a lot of humans are already writing what you might call, like, robotic-type books. Formulaic. Yeah, I mean, you're thinking, like, the sort of the Mills and Boons, sort of churn, sort of press-type stuff. I mean, if you want to be really controversial, I might say Harry Potter, but hey, there we go. <laughs> so if I get the hatred spilling in the comment section now. Um, but there is a certain um, A to B to C yeah. of literature in general, I think, um, to be accepted within whatever sort of genre you're writing in. And so I can see why this company would have said we, we want to prohibit people producing stuff by AI or automated processes, which is ironic because if a human's done it, they, they are themselves also fun working in a sort of automated way within a certain framework, perhaps um, adhering to rules laid down by whatever the well, like society, pub or society or, the pub or the publisher has said. But it's making me wonder why they might have done this. Well, one thing that makes me think of is, um, well, I mean, talk, just talk about the possibility of it. Mm. Um, you know, the last election um, in December 2019, one of the things that the BBC did was to use um, an AI system to produce uh, articles for each constituency, mm. but it was just very gen it was very generic. It basically mm. took the numbers of, of the um, the vote vote share vote count whatever um, and the parties and sort of created a very generic mm. um, article. So in X constituency, A party got this much, yeah. B party got this much, and then you know a, a few different sort of phrases thrown in for for, for flavour. Yeah. Um, so it's not. So this is obviously possible. Yeah, and, and it's uh, happening already. It's been happening, happening for yeah. a long time. I mean. Um, but then in terms of them wanting to avoid it, one of the, well, I think there's probably several reasons. But um, one of the things that made me think of was a couple of years ago, this company called OpenAI said we've developed this um, text generating system. I think it's called GP two or something like that. And they basically said it was so good 
they wouldn't release it to the public, even right. though their whole raison d'etre is being a company called OpenAI, yeah. which to release all of their code open source. Right. Um, and I said it was so it would be so dangerous because so many um, you could use it to create lots of news articles that would basically be disinformation. Mm. So they said they weren't going to do it, and yeah, because it was dangerous. So maybe in in that sense. It's the same sort of thing in that in that you could use a book publisher because because books have more sort of authoritative weight when they're sort of about science or yeah or or even about politics you know it's it, you know a news article a journalist has thought about it yeah but, you know to write a book of 200 200 300 pages whatever you know someone's got to have put a lot of deep thought into it to even mm. develop that many words yeah. words but also concepts that need conveying with those words mm. that words. So they sort of inherently have more weight, don't they? Mm. So maybe in that sense, that, you know, an AI-created book is actually more dangerous than just a journalistic piece that's sort of throwaway. Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously there are throwaway books, but mm. do, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking as well about this mass production thing because there's this, this sense that, well, okay, so I want to write a lot of books making this point. I'll, I'll program a machine to do a couple of different, hundred, and then suddenly I flood the system with yeah. these works. But then I suppose from the publisher's point of view, there's a there's a capitalistic imperative in that if all these, if you can't tell the difference between an AI book and a human book, suddenly those human authors aren't going to write books anymore, and suddenly you've got this case where the AI is sort of, sort of outselling the humans, and suddenly their book, suddenly the value of this publisher's product, i.e., human books, hmm. are not, it's not worth anything because you can't, they're not necessarily even human. Well, yeah. So I suppose it's, um, but. Yeah, but no, if, 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 if society becomes aware there are lots of books produced by AI mm. and they don't really want to use them. Mm. Like, for instance, um, there's sort of a back, you know, there's often a backlash against automation. So I'm thinking um, when they've tried experiments of um, fully automated supermarkets, mm. people actually want a cashier there. Yeah, they want a human person. I mean, when they're doing a big shop, not when you've just bought a bottle of pop and some crisps. Yeah. You, then, you, then you just want to use the, the self-checker, don't you? But, um, you know, a, a, in the same way that a, a, a big shop with a with a human cashier has a sort of a... It's different to just a nip in and out, isn't it? Mm. In the same sense, that I think maybe, uh, you know, a book is different from just a, a news article. So I wonder if there would be a backlash and people would actually favour the human authors. Yeah, but then obviously, how do you how would you tell the difference? Well, yeah, and I suppose That's also there's, there's there's a question again about uh, how many people are really going to think about it. Yeah, or how many people would even be bothered? Yeah, I mean, this actually does tie quite nicely with a previous yeah. podcast about uh, Man Plus that we we're talking about the book, because obviously the, the twist in the Man Plus is that you're reading it as assuming that they're scientists narrating, but actually it turns out it's computers that are narrating it, and it just makes me think of that because ultimately this could be the same with books. Obviously, um, we don't know who's how many processes these books have been through. But then I was just thinking, just sort of to close off really, um, the actual process of making books themselves is quite an automated process because from the sort of uh, spell checking and formatting particularly, they essentially put them through a series of algorithms to basically lay out the book as a, as a book as we understand yeah. it today. So already you're moving away from what you might consider the, sort of the, the old school form of putting books together by hand or whatever. And that, that in itself creates a slightly different product to... Um, I mean, this ties with a lot of the stuff that we talked to Claire about in the past with sort of book history and how books are actually constructed physically mm. and the way that that's done, the way they're designed, the way things are lined up, um, the fonts that are used, all this sort of stuff, which does make me think, actually, is this just the next logical step 
in sort of book production to take the take the human out completely. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I think we will. Yeah, that's a good place to round it off. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat, visit inthezonepodcast.com.